Chapter Thirty, Part One of the Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, the Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter Thirty: Michael grows rich and takes a very delightful walk back to Westmoreland. His preparations for a longer journey are suddenly stopped. He makes a painful visit, but meets many old acquaintances. Part One. The morning's walk had been a long one, even for Michael Armstrong and right glad was he to find himself again in the neatly sanded kitchen of his little inn, with a loaf and cheese before him of sufficient dimensions to resist any attacks he could make upon them. A moderate proportion of beer, in addition to the solid meal these afforded, refreshed him so effectually that he determined to take his leave of Mr. Bell that night, preparatory to setting off on his return to Westmoreland on the following morning, in order to bid farewell to his good old master there. On the subject of Martha's banknotes he meant to be entirely guided by the advice of the clergyman, being equally fearful of offending, or rather of paining their generous owner by refusing to accept them, or of depriving her of what might be hereafter useful by agreeing to do so. "'I have seen Miss Martha, sir,' were his first words on entering Mr. Bell's parlour, and both look and accent showed that the interview had been an interesting one. "'But alas, she is greatly altered.' he added, restraining with difficulty the tears that rose to his eyes. I fear she is very ill, but she was glad, oh, so glad to see me, sir. She has been fretting, poor dear young lady, under the false notion that she had been to blame about me. But, thank heaven, thinks she knows better now, and perhaps when her mind is at ease again she may recover health. I can't bear to think how pale and thin she has grown, and all about me, to whom she was the best and kindest friend that ever poor boy had. "'And see, sir, what she has done now,' continued Michael, drawing forth the roll of notes from his pocket. "'Here is a large sum of money, I believe. She did not rightly know how much it was herself, she told me, because she had kept on putting by what she did not want, and had never accounted how much it came to. And I'm sure I have not counted it either. But whether it is a little or much, I don't feel quite certain whether I ought to take it.' Mr. Bell smiled at the unusual manner in which the rich-looking but carelessly packed roll of paper had passed from one hand to the other. Before he examined the contents, he questioned Michael as to all that the generous-hearted girl had said to him on bestowing it, and the young man's faithful answers soon convinced him that there would be little kindness to the self-approaching Martha in refusing a donation which she evidently considered as an atonement, and which would, he doubted not, by its application to Michael's necessities, do more towards healing her wounded mind than any other thing whatever. "'You must not refuse the gift, Michael,' said Mr. Bell, after hearing his narrative to the end. "'I do not wonder, little as she has been to blame in the matter, at her having suffered greatly for all that she innocently made you suffer. Nor am I at all surprised, since it was in her power to do so, that she should wish to make you this atonement.' It comes at a lucky moment, my dear boy, for not only will it enable you to present yourself before Miss Brotherton, without throwing yourself, as you said yesterday, upon her charity, but I suspect it may go far in assisting your hopes of entering into some business, which may enable you to support yourself. Mr. Bell then opened the bundle of notes, and found that they amounted to rather more than five hundred pounds, a sum which, to Michael, appeared so enormous that he uttered something like a remonstrance against the opinion which advises appropriating the whole. "'Did you not tell me, sir,' he said, "'that Sir Matthew Dowling's affairs were not considered to be in so flourishing a state as they had been? "'And may not this money be wanted by Miss Martha "'in case he should really become involved in difficulties?' "'I think there is no danger of her wanting it, Michael,' returned Mr. Bell. 
Let what will happen, I have no doubt that Sir Matthew will be able to secure sufficient from the relics of his enormous wealth to maintain his family in easy circumstances. A sum like this, my dear boy, is but a drop in such an ocean. Michael resisted no longer, and this point being settled, his plan of operations was soon arranged. In deference to Martha's fears for his safety, he decided not to visit his good friend Richard Smithson at Milford, Mr. Bell undertaking to settle the matter of the loan, and, moreover, to convey to the kind-hearted man the assurances of Michael's well-doing, of his gratitude, and hearty good wishes. The letter from the travellers, which was to settle the happy Michael's road, would probably arrive within a week or two, and Mr. Bell recommended that, having paid his farewell visit to Westmoreland, he should return to Fairley, and there equip himself in such a manner as would be suitable for presenting himself before Miss Brotherton. Mr. Bell agreed to take the custody of his treasure till his return, and with his bundle again on his shoulder and five pounds in his pocket, Michael set off to walk over the fells and moors he had to traverse, with a lightness of spirit that seemed to strew the deserts with flowers, and made every blast that blew upon him as soft and sweet as the gales of Araby. It was not the least, perhaps, of his pleasures, as he strode sturdily along, to compare his present walk with that which had conducted him from the deep valley to Ashley four years before. The suffering, the terror, and the final agony of that expedition could not come over his mind, however, without throwing a shade over his gladness. But it chastened without obscuring the bright combination of objects that glowed in the prospect before him. And altogether it would be difficult to find any walk on record more replete with enjoyment than this of Michael to the humble mountain home that had so kindly sheltered him. It was with a very flattering mixture of joy and sorrow that the good statesman and his family accepted Michael's farewell, and listened to his happy hopes, and it was amidst blessings and hearty good wishes that once again he sallied forth to wend his way for the last time over the mountains, and bid a fond and lingering adieu to his beloved lakes and tarns. He felt that those had been to him as teachers and preachers, elevating his heart and imagination, and preparing him more effectually perhaps than any other school could have done for the different sphere of life in which he now hoped to move. On reaching Fairley, he found that a letter had arrived from Miss Brotherton, enclosing one to Martha Dowling, which had been forwarded immediately, and which, by what the kind-hearted heiress said to her Fairley friends, seemed to have been written in consequence of the reports which had reached her respecting the failing fortunes of Sir Matthew. Miss Brotherton was at Nice, where it was her purpose to remain for some months. To Nice, then, the thrice-happy Michael prepared to go, a respectable wardrobe, and all other necessary equipments were easily procured in the neighbourhood, his place to London taken, and all things ready for his setting off, save that he still expected an answer to a very cautiously worded epistle which he had ventured to address to Martha, informing her that he was setting off for Nice, and that any letter or message she might wish to convey to Miss Brotherton should be carefully delivered by her faithful humble servant, M. A. Michael was at breakfast with his kind and hospitable friends when a lad, bearing great marks of hasty travelling in his appearance, made his way into the room and with a look that seemed to prophesy eventful tidings, if he were but asked for them, delivered a letter to Mr. Bell. This proved, however, to be only a blank cover, enclosing one to Michael which was handed to him, while the eyes of his host and hostess fixed themselves with some anxiety on his face. Michael tore open the despatch and changed colour as he read it. Then, giving an intelligible glance at the messenger who ceased not to wipe his forehead with one arm, while he held his hat squeezed to his side with the other, he said, I should like to speak to you about this, Mr. Bell. Go into the kitchen, my lad, 
said the clergyman, and get some breakfast. You shall know when the answer is ready. Though evidently disappointed at being thus dismissed unquestioned, the boy consoled himself with the hope of a kitchen audience, and making his reverence retired. "'What in the world have you got there, Michael?' demanded Mr. Bell. "'Not good news, I am afraid.' "'No, indeed, sir,' replied Michael, "'very far from it. It is from Miss Martha Dowling, who seems to be in great distress. "'Read it to us, my good fellow, will you? If there is no reason to the contrary.' "'What is written here, sir, cannot long be a secret from anybody. This is what she says.' "'Dear Michael, pray come to me at Dowling Lodge directly. "'There is no longer any danger to be feared from my poor dear father, "'for he is very, very ill. "'And I think you can be useful to me, "'which I am sure you will be if you can. "'Alas, Michael, you will witness a dreadful scene. "'My poor father has kept everything secret to the very last, "'meaning, I am sure, to prepare his family for it as well as he could. "'I could not think what it was made him send all my sisters away to Arabella and Harriet.' The two little ones, indeed, as well as the three youngest boys, are all at school, so that I am the only child he has left with him, my elder brothers being all away in their different professions. I tell you all this now, Michael, because I shall, I suppose, have no time to say anything but on necessary business when you come here. Do not delay. I am sure you can be useful to me. In great sorrow, your friend, Martha Dowling. Poor girl, this is sad indeed, cried Mr. Bell. I imagine, though she does not explain herself, that her father's affairs are fallen into confusion. Yet I cannot guess what you can do for her. However, you must go immediately, of course, and you had better hire a chaise that no time may be lost. And I would advise you, Michael, to take with you the pocket-book which Mrs. Bell packed up for you so carefully last night. I fear that it is but too likely your prediction will be fulfilled already, and that the poor young lady may be glad to have some of her notes returned. "'Thank God that I was not gone,' replied Michael fervently. "'It will be the greatest pleasure of my life if I can be useful to her.' Little time was lost in setting off, and certainly much before his arrival had been hoped for by Martha, Michael, who left his post-chaise at a public house near the lodge, was walking towards the mansion by the same path in which he had so lately parted from her. On entering the kitchen, the scene which met his eyes explained at the very first glance the nature of the business carrying on upon the premises. A number of men were standing about, some few occupied in sticking slips of paper inscribed Lot Number Blank, upon a variety of articles which appear to have been collected there for the purpose. Others, with black canvas aprons and paper caps, were coming and going with no very apparent purpose, while another set, with cold meat and beer flagons before them, sat round a small table in a corner, discoursing upon themes which appeared to occasion them much merriment. But among all these there was not one that looked like a servant of the house. And, taking advantage of the confusion which seemed to license the freedom, he walked on without speaking to any of them, and determined to trust to his memory for finding the small morning parlour which used to contain all poor Martha's little literary personalities, and in which all his reading and writing lessons had been received. Neither his recollection nor his conjecture deceived him. He found the apartment he sought, and on opening the door discovered Martha sitting there. But she was not, as he had hoped to find her, alone. On a sofa placed opposite the window sat a figure, bolt upright in the middle of it, with a sofa table before her entirely covered with trinkets, delicate Sevres china, miniature bronzes, and other valuable knick-knacks. A quantity of cotton wool lay on the sofa beside her, 
and her long lean fingers were actively employed in selecting the most precious articles, enveloping them in the wool, and then cramming them into a large basket that stood before her, sometimes selecting one either smaller or more precious than the rest, and thrusting it into her pocket or up her sleeve. A large Indian screen was spread before the door, which induced Michael, on hearing a voice that certainly was not that of his friend Martha, to remain unseen long enough to decide whether his entrance would be likely to occasion her any embarrassment. "'I tell you, Martha, that you talk like a fool, and that is what you always were and always will be,' said the upright lady in a shrill voice, but in a tone that she was endeavouring to reduce to a whisper. "'What right can any one of those horrid dirty fellows have with what is mine, I should like to know?' I am not going to be made bankrupt or sent to jail, or have my property seized because your abominable, wicked, low-born, brutal, treacherous, false father has been found out and is going to be treated as he deserves. As for you and all the rest of your family, there is nothing to be said or done, I suppose, but to submit and just do what you can to get your bread. With such blood as you have got in your veins, there will be no great harm done if you were all to go out as housemaids and footmen. The thing happens among low people continually if the father gets into distress. But I should like to know who ever heard of a woman of quality, the daughter of an earl, being treated in the same sort of unceremonious way. But indeed, Lady Clarissa, it will be a great deal worse for my father if it is found out that his wife has been endeavouring to secrete property, said Martha. His wife, indeed, a pretty sort of husband he has made of me, hasn't he? having my noble arms painted on his paltry carriages and engraven on his plate, not a single ounce of which had been twenty years in his possession. And then, vulgar wretch, insisting upon seeing my housekeeper's account, for fear I should save anything out of the money he allowed me. Pitiful, cheating, brutal, manufacturing savage. But thank heaven my slavery is at an end. Tomorrow will see me many a good mile on my way to Scotland. The monsters say I may take my clothes and my money, and my clothes and my money I will take, I promise you, Miss Martha. So I will really advise you to go and collect your own things and see them put together decently. You may be able to sell some of them, perhaps, which might be very useful, and that would be spending your time much more profitably and decently, too, than sitting there lecturing me upon what I may and what I may not take. I shall take everything that belongs to me, and there's an end of that and I wished in my heart you would just go away and leave me in peace. Did I not know, Lady Clarissa, that my father would suffer for it, said Martha, rising, I would not have troubled you with my remonstrances. But I am certain that you are now occupied in abstracting things that of right belong to my poor father's creditors, and if it is discovered, it may be the means of their refusing his certificate, and he may be thrown into jail for life. And where would he be better, Miss Martha? I am sure I don't know. My belief is that he is mad or going to be mad, and I don't see but a jail is as comfortable as a madhouse, and as it must be a great deal cheaper, it will suit his circumstances a great deal better. I wish you would go, child, and see if there is such a thing in the house as a basin of soup for my luncheon. I may ring and ring, but there is not a creature that will answer the bell now. Martha made no reply, but she rose from her chair, and Michael stepped back into the passage that she might not meet him within hearing of her selfish stepmother. "'You are come, then,' exclaimed the poor girl on catching sight of him. "'This is very kind of you, Michael. If you will walk this way with me, there is nobody in the great drawing-room now. I will explain my reasons for sending for you.' 
Michael followed her to the well-remembered drawing-room, which had so often witnessed the display of Sir Matthew's munificent charity, by showing him off to all the neighbourhood. The recollection was very hateful to him, yet the right-hearted lad felt a pang as he accompanied his benefactress into this greatly altered scene of former splendour. The whole house was under preparation for a sale by auction, and nothing could exceed the speaking state of gilded desolation which this fine room exhibited. "'Never mind the confusion, Michael. Just step over these curtains. We can sit down up in that corner of the room. Take care of the mirrors, my dear boy. Surely they have thrown these costly things about more heedlessly than was necessary,' said poor Martha, as she led the way rather over than through the scattered mass of splendid furniture with which the room was strewed. "'It is strange, Michael,' she resumed as soon as they had seated themselves in a clear space of six feet wide, where two chairs were standing near one of the windows. "'It is strange, most strange, that you should be the only person that I could think of to assist my poor father in his misery. You, who have suffered so severely from, from his displeasure. But I found out, Michael, that you had a kind, good heart when you used to talk to me of your mother and poor Teddy. It was that which made me take notice of you then.' and it is that which makes me ask for your assistance now. "'And happy and thankful shall I be if I can do you any good, Miss Martha,' replied Michael eagerly. "'I have brought back the notes, all but about twelve pounds, that has been laid out for me. It is a very large sum, Miss Martha, and I trust it will be useful to you.' "'I do not want it, my dear boy,' replied Martha, smiling through her tears. "'But I am glad to find that I was not mistaken in you.' "'No, Michael,' Let me still, under all circumstances, have the unspeakable comfort of believing that I have been able to make you some little atonement for all you have gone through, from my ill-judged and ignorant advice. You would make no difficulty about keeping what has been accumulated out of my hatred of silks and satins, Michael, if you could guess the extraordinary good it has done me to know that you are alive and well, and less destitute than you would have been had you never seen me. I thought I was dying, Michael, before your little note reached me. But now, strange to say, spite of all the calamities which have fallen upon my family since, I feel as if I might still live long enough to be useful to my poor father. Alas, Michael, his condition is very dreadful. For some months past I have perceived a great alteration in him. His memory has failed him, and at times his temper has been so variable that I have seen him violently angry, and very intemperate in his language one minute, and enduring the insolence of Lady Clarissa with the meekness of a child of the next. And now, in short, Michael, I greatly fear that his reason is shaken by the misfortunes that have fallen upon him. He has kept all his commercial disasters so completely to himself that not even his most confidential agents were at all aware of their extent. And I therefore hope that if I can contrive to remove him from this melancholy scene, his mind will be relieved by feeling that the worst is over and that I may have the exceeding happiness of seeing him restored to reason and to health. And in what way, then, can I be useful to you, my dear Miss Martha? I dare not combat your will, but it seems to me that if his creditors are stripping his house in this way, such a sum as you have put into my hands might be very useful to him, said Michael. And so it would certainly, my good friend, if he had not provided for the exigences of this terrible moment, by having a large sum of ready money in the house, a fact which he has confided to me only, replied Martha. His marriage with Lady Clarissa, she continued, has been a greater misfortune to him, Michael, than any losses in his business could possibly be. She has led him a most wretched life, constantly keeping his high spirit in subjection by threatening to bring her brother upon him, 
if he treated her with any want of respect, and my poor father's reverence for rank and title is such that he has submitted to her in everything. But during the terrible fortnight that has passed since the disclosure of his ruin, her conduct has been perfectly frightful, and I feel quite certain that when she has taken herself off to Scotland, which she intends to do to-morrow, my father will feel so greatly relieved that the very best effects upon his mind may be hoped for from it. What I want you to do for me, Michael, is this. You must procure a post-chaise to be at the lodge gates to-night at twelve. The men who are left in charge of the house get both tired and tipsy before that hour, and will be in bed and asleep. And then I think I shall be able to get my father away from all the irritating objects which surround him here. He has been very ill with violent spasms, and confined to his bed for a day or two, which one of the maids tells me is the reason why he has not been more strictly watched. They think he is too ill to get away. But he is greatly better to-day, and though I have persuaded him to remain in bed, I think he has quite lost the complaint, and will be able to get off if you will do what I desire of you. I know not another being that I could trust. My poor father has spent a great deal of money, and been very liberal to many, but I do not know one whom I do not suspect would be more ready to betray than to help him, if they saw him endeavouring to get away. His physician, Dr. Crockley, a man on whom he has heaped innumerable favours, is, I strongly suspect, acting as a spy upon him. And it is because I expect his daily visit presently that I will not let my father get up. Therefore, you see, Michael, there are some difficulties to be encountered. Do you think you could manage to get a chaise to the gates without its being known that it was for him? I am quite sure of it, replied Michael, for to save time I came hither in a chaise myself, which is now waiting at the public-house to take me back to Fairley. I have only to go and tell the boy that I shall not be able to return before night, in order to have him ready to start at any hour you please. To Fairley, said Martha musingly. But it is no matter. He may sleep at the inn there as well as at any other, and the next morning we must make our way to the nearest port where there is a chance of our finding a steamboat going to France. It will not do at present for my father to remain in the country. When he has got his certificate he will be safe, but I greatly fear some difficulty about it. While Martha was thus explaining her hopes and fears, the sound of carriage wheels was heard slowly approaching by the road which led to the chief entrance, and which passed at no great distance from the window at which they were sitting. "'Here comes Dr. Crockley,' she exclaimed. "'I am very glad his visit will be over so early. This will give me time for preparation.' But she was mistaken. The equipage she heard approaching was not the recently set-up cab of Dr. Crockley, but the donkey-chair of the ever-active Mrs. Gabberly. Nothing could be much farther from poor Martha's inclination than encountering the prying old woman at this moment. But having hastily told Michael to appear as if he were employed in taking a catalogue of the furniture for which purpose paper, pens, and ink lay conveniently ready on one of the marble slabs, she hurried out into the hall for the purpose of meeting the physician, and attending him as usual to her father, so that the avoiding Mrs. Gabberly was impossible. "'Oh, my poor dear Martha, that's you, is it? Well, now, you was just the person I wanted to see. But I do wonder you did not get off with your father, poor man, when he made his escape this morning,' said the unchanged little lady. "'I know not what you mean, Mrs. Gabberly,' replied Martha gravely. "'My poor father has been extremely ill.' and is at this moment confined to his bed. 
The old lady gave a wink with one of her little cunning black eyes, and nodding her head very expressively, replied, "'Old birds are not caught with chaff, my dear.' "'What is it that you mean, Mrs. Gabberly, that you do not believe me?' said Martha indignantly. "'You are very foolish to bawl out in that manner, my dear, with that young fellow that's cataloguing in there close within hearing. Mind it is your fault and not mine if he suspects anything from your violence.' "'You are taking an account of all the looking-glasses, are you not?' said Martha, approaching the drawing-room door and addressing Michael. "'You may come into Sir Matthew's room now, if you please. He was asleep when I sent you away just now.' Then, turning to Mrs. Gabberly, she added, "'Perhaps you would be so good as to see my poor father, Mrs. Gabberly. I would not wish you to stay long with him, for he is very feverish. But I dare say he would take it very kindly if you will just come in to inquire for him.' End of chapter 30, part 1